I'm author and critic David Agronoff. I'm a horror and science fiction author, critic, and researcher. In this podcast, I wanted to provide in-depth interviews and panel discussions with everyone from New York Times bestselling authors to researchers, musicians, and anyone I find interesting. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Welcome to a very special episode of Postcards from a Dying World. Uh, This one is a big one for me. Uh, Stanley Weotter is the author of Dark Dreamers. If I had not bought this book when it came out in 1990, we might not be listening to this conversation together. Um, I wouldn't have a shelf of horror novels sitting over there that I wrote myself. Um, I don't think... um, I don't think I would have taken this uh, path had I not read Dark Dreamers and Dark Visions. So Stanley's done a lot of work, but these two books are part of what I really want to talk about today because they were a huge influence on me. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But he's also the author of books on Stephen King, Richard Matheson, and many others. Um, One of the great researchers of the field of horror and you know i do cover a little bit more science fiction around these parts than i do horror but you know horror is one of my loves and this year is really horror is really important because um we're hosting stoker con here in san diego this year so i'm getting real jazzed up and excited for that welcome to the podcast stanley it is an honor to have you here Thank you, David. It's, it's, it's an honor that uh, I ruined your life. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. It is your fault. Um, so uh, so what I want to do a little bit here is I got to get this out of the way and ask you the question that Norman Spinrad called me stupid for asking him. But how did you get into genre fiction? Like, how did this happen for you? Because I feel like we need this baseline to start this conversation. So you know, I have to ask it, like, where, where was your original love for, for horror and science fiction and the fantastic? Where did that start? Well, I'm going to name drop uh, an obscure writer. His name is Stephen King. Yeah, that guy. He once said, he once famously said, when people asked him that same stupid question, he said, what makes you think I had a choice? Right. Right. I had no choice. yeah, I loved I loved horror, fantasy, science fiction. Uh, one of the first authors I ever read was Edgar Rice Burroughs, H.P. Right. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith. You know the good old boys from Weird Tales, discovering them in in beat up paperbacks and used bookstores in a small rural town called Hadley, Massachusetts. Mm. Now Hadley, Massachusetts is a small town, but it just happens to be bordered by Amherst and Northampton. Massachusetts, mm. which happened to have Amherst College, Mount Holyoke College, University of Massachusetts, Smith College, Mount Holyoke College, just a few minor colleges surround Hadley. And of course, the used bookstores there were just, just overflowing with mm. fantasy, science fiction, and horror. So from a very early age, I didn't need no damn library. I just had to go to the used bookstores and get 
the land that time forgot for 10 cents with a Frank Rosetta cover, or an H.P. Lowcraft, the color out of space for 25 cents in a used paperback edition. So since I was a precocious reader from, I would say, age eight and upwards, uh, I already had my feast waiting to be devoured. Well, and, you know, at my age, I already, you know, because I come in the generation that's post Stephen King. So, like, of course, Stephen King was a huge part of, like, you know, my introduction to the genre and the idea of writers being human beings. But really, for me, and I've said this before, but, um, you know, I was I already knew who Stephen King was, but it was really seeing Richard Matheson books in a used bookstore and recognizing his name from the credits on Star Trek and the Twilight Zone and going, oh, wait, this guy wrote books, too. And yes. I recognize that name. And he's a he's a guy. And, you know, somebody had to write these. Now, I didn't really connect the fact that he only wrote one Star Trek, but I knew he wrote a lot of Twilight Zones. So Richard Matheson was really important to me in that regard but i'm sure like there were certain authors when you were growing up that like they're just their names kept appearing and is that how you got interest in yes it was ray bradbury and this is of course these are all common knowledge to the least certainly coming from my generation who grew yeah. up reading paperbacks from the 1950s and early 60s it was ray bradbury's the october country charles oh, okay. Bowen, the magic yeah. man that was the that was the magic that was the magic one. Now, yeah, you, you, yeah, you became a researcher. You became somebody who who wrote about the field. Like, how early were you interested in the people behind behind it, or was was did that come eventually? Because you know, it came to one book, one book, David, and it's yeah. always that way. It's either one author or one book. It's right. a book called Seekers of Tomorrow by mm. Sam Moskowitz, came out in the late 60s or early 70s, I believe late 60s. It was a collection of profiles of, of famous science fiction writers. And, and uh, writing that down. <laughs> oh, you got to get it. I mean, Moskowitz was, was a brilliant researcher. He was one of the very first researchers. He also did one of the very first uh, biographies of Edgar Rice Burroughs. I was a total Edgar Rice Burroughs nut. And Robert mm -hmm. E. Howard not when I was a when I was a kid. And by kid I mean about 10 years old, 10 to 12 years old. So uh finding finding the seekers of tomorrow, that that became my Bible because it was it was profiles, which I had never seen before, of Edmund Hamilton, you know, of Ray Bradbury, of mm -hmm. uh, you know, Lester Del Rey. And I just sat there and I said, you know, I want to read about Ray Bradbury's because of October Country, but what kind of mind comes up with the stories that you know became the book The October Country? So I started looking into the behind the scenes, and this was again pre-internet. This is why I have to kind of like educate the younger folks by saying, you know, there was a time there was no internet, right. there was no Google machine. You just had to go to the damn library or own. Uh, a thousand books as a kid to find out who these writers were and what was about them. And uh, with the exception of Edgar Rice Burroughs, none of these writers had biographies written about them uh, at the time back in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, you know, like little tidbits that are kind of things that we all know, like that Ray Bradbury performed the wedding for Edmund Hamilton and Lee Brackett, like these types of things, like you can read that on Wikipedia now, but back then, like, you know, this is a thing that you're just, you, you know, like facts and like about how these people interacted, how they taught each other, you know, how they worked together. Like you just didn't know that they were just names on the spine of the book. Yeah, Lee Brackett was Ray Bradbury's mentor. There'd be no Ray Bradbury if it wasn't for Lee Brackett. That is very important uh, piece of history too. And speaking as a Lee Brackett fan, um, you know, I think that's uh, that's something that should be remembered. And um, I I learned from going to the Ray Bradbury Center in um, in uh, Indianapolis, which is it's interesting that's in Indianapolis, but that the one of the leading um authorities on ray bradbury taught at iupui and that's why it's there but they recreated his entire office they moved everything from la and it's in a basement in indiana now and um i grew up in indiana so that's one of the reasons why when i was back home but they had there the copy of the original draft of the empire strikes back that lee brackett had been keeping ray bradbury in the know on because she was afraid that if she died before she finished it, she had asked Ray to help finish it. <laughs> yeah. And like little things like that. It's just amazing. Like, you know, I, I love research and I'm just nerding out on the idea of research. That's all right. No, no, I Ray Bradbury's office. I did my first what I call my dark dreamers interviews when I when I coined the term dark uh-huh. dreamers. My first interview professional was with uh, Ray Bradbury, which was done on August 7th of 1974. And wow. we did it in his office and I'd been through his house and I spent the entire evening in his house and his wife had to kick me out because I'm I sure refused to leave. I just want, I had the tape recorder on and I had tape after tape after tape. I did not, I worship this man. Yes. And I had met him at Warner Brothers. I was there on a scholarship to study in the summer of 74. And at that time, Sam Peckinpah was going to direct Something Wicked This Way Comes. Mm-hmm. And there had been a private screening of Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Wow. And Bradbury my favorite Peckinpah movie. By and the way. I went up to Bradbury and I said, excuse me, Mr. Bradbury, I just happen to be your number one fan. Can I interview you? I'm just a lowly college student, but I, you know, I, I will cut my wrist if you don't, if you refuse me this honor. And he said, sure, kid. Come on to my house, you know, just give me a call. He gave me his number and I, I, I got a taxi and got dropped off. And as I say, I, I did not leave his house until the wife says, Ray, come to bed. It's past your bedtime. And I, <laughs> That's great. I so he was the official Dark Dreamers interview. Okay. Now, w- w- at that time, were you already thinking of it as being a book eventually or did you, were you not thinking that far ahead yet? David, I'm not hearing you again. I'm sorry. Did, did were you already thinking of that as, as as a book, or did you lose you lose my sound? Hold on, let me pause. David, uh, sorry, we had a little technical difficulty. But um, so, did you always have it planned as a as a book or when you did that first interview with Ray Bradbury, or was that just a like I got an excuse to talk to Ray Bradbury and the book came eventually later? Well, even though I was in college, it was my junior year in college 
that I got the scholarship. Of, I was one of five people who wrote an essay and won a scholarship to study at Warner Brothers for the summer of mm -hmm. 74. And that's that's a that's a long story, and we'll get to it uh, at another time. But I was still in college at the University of Massachusetts, and foolishly, I decided to go back and finish out my college education rather than doing the smart thing, which would have been stay in Los Angeles and get a job at Warner Brothers, you know, right. even if it was in the mailroom. But be that as it may, I went back, and I when I graduated college, I got a job as a freelance newspaper stringer. So I was an entertainment reporter uh, for a weekly arts newspaper, and I took the interviews that I did because I did uh, a few dozen interviews while I was out in California, knowing that, the, you know, this is money uh, mm. to be made by doing the interviews. Uh, one Someday I'll tell you the story how I interviewed David Carradine on well, the set of Kung Fu. I mean, feel free like <laughs> well, we both got stoned together he he was stoned constantly he smoked cigar sized reefer every day on the set and so when he we agreed to be interviewed we went back to his trailer and i smoked my first cigar sized joint and i left my tape recorder behind i left my mind behind and i still got an article out of it even though i didn't have the actual tape with, with me but going no. back I'm sorry, go ahead. No, so a lot of these interviews that you did for these books, you were able to sell along the way to outlets like Fangoria and Twilight Zone, the magazine and things like that. And a lot of people don't know, like, just how amazing, like, for example, Twilight Zone, the magazine was during that era. It was one of the oh, few. At every issue. I was in it. I was in it quite regularly. Yeah. Uh, I made a living. I was I was I was brought up on a. Uh, lower middle class. uh upbringing but the point was i knew i was going to be a journalist i knew i was going to be a researcher i knew i was going to be a writer from an early age and i sold my first article when i at age 16 to fate magazine so mm -hmm. this was in high school at age 16 so i knew at a tender age that i was going to make a living at it so how do you make a living at it well you basically you interview famous people and you sell it to the newspapers and you sell another part of that interview to another newspaper. Then you sell it to a magazine. Then after you sell it to a magazine, you say, hey, I think I've got enough interviews to put them out in a book. Then you get an agent. Then you get an agent to get, get you the best deal because you got the biggest names in the industry of, of the horror and fantasy and science fiction. And you get a nice, you know, five to six figure advance for the two books, Dark Dreamers, Dark Visions. Which I, which had all been repeatedly sold to the various outlets, mm -hmm. so I was smart enough to say, if I'm going to make a living at this, I've got to squeeze out every nickel from every person who's ever been kind enough to to talk to me over the years. Now, and I and I want to explain to people and to you a little bit. Now, I I shared with you over uh, um, uh, email and and messenger and stuff like how important these books were to me, but. And for the hilarious reason, one of the hilarious reasons which we'll get to, and anyone who's watching the YouTube version of this can see how beaten and read and loved my Dark Dreamers is. And so for me, as a person who wanted to tell stories, who loved horror fiction, I, I you know, like in the back of my head, I wanted to be a writer. At the time, I felt very challenged by the fact that I was dyslexic. Well, I am dyslexic. 
and I had to overcome that. But one of the things that kept me like interested was, and just made me go, oh, this is a career, people do this, was reading Dark Dreamers and the sequel about horror film, Dark Visions, and two years later. But right when this came out, I got a copy at uh, Morgan Stern's Books in my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana, um, which, is, which is back. That store was gone for a while, but they're back. And um, like reading these interviews were so foundational for me because they were inspiring because it was about storytelling and it was about creation and it was about all these things. And it was all these people who like, I read some of the, like Robert McCammon or Dennis Atchison were people whose books I'd read, but because I'd heard interviews with Stephen King and Richard Matheson, the big, big, big names, but the, the more obscure names in there that were, were in here. And, and we'll talk a little bit about all the different people that are in here in a little bit. But for example, like a big one for me was John Ferris. Cause I read a lot of John Ferris, but there was, precious to little no information yeah. about john ferris and i loved the fury and i loved the x-men cometh and i love son of the endless night and there wasn't anything out there about that guy so and i'm gonna let you talk in a minute and i'm just going through a lot of this for for my listeners but i literally for years because dark dreamers is a book that you could just pick up and read any little part I kept it on my toilet. Because... And that's the ultimate honor. You know that for an author, people are going to laugh at us. But the yeah. ultimate author uh, compliment to an author is you say, by the way, I have you as a bathroom reader. One of yeah. your works. Instead of magazines, I kept Dark Dreamers and Dark Visions in my bathroom. So when I sat down and I knew I was going to be there for a minute or two, I could open to any page. And that was one of the things that I did. I, I didn't look, you know, like maybe today I opened to Graham Masterson, Mas, Masterson. Maybe today I opened to James Herbert or Charles Grant. And it was like, it was constantly inspiration to, to keep trying, to keep thinking about these things. And so for years, uh, I, I, I read and reread parts of these books. And there, there are things I quote from here, from these interviews, all the time, unconsciously, unconsciously. And a lot of what I know about genre comes from here. So I just want to give people that background of why this is so important to me. Now, let's get into some of the names that are here. Clive Barker, Robert Block, Gary Brandener, um, Charles L. Grant. I'm just, you know, bouncing around a bit. Matheson, Lehman. McCammon, Anne Rice, uh, Whitley Strieber, Skip Inspector, um, J.N. Williamson, which for Indiana folks, like he was one of ours, um, you know, like what was the process of finding all these people? How did you choose them? And and what was your process heading? Well, I'm getting a bunch of questions. Let's start with how you picked people for this pro process. Well, first of all, I read their books, you know, being being hooked on horror, for, for lack of a better phrase. It was very easy to read Richard Matheson because Richard Matheson was a big influence on me. When I found 
uh, in the in the bookstore his book called Shock exclamation point. We, if you remember the original edition, it had a spoon on the cover, and the spoon and the face of the spoon was an open screaming mouth, kind of like prototype uh, J.K. Potter illustration. Right. And I saw that cover with the with the screaming spoon and the title Shock, and, and I said, "What the hell is this?" And of course, then I looked at it and I said, "Wait a minute, that story—that's a Twilight Zone episode." And I think that might, that's the same that you had. And yeah, I'm sure a yeah. lot of other people said, never heard of Richard Matheson before, but I've seen that Twilight Zone episode and here's the original story that it was based upon. So I had to seek out Richard Matheson and ultimately I actually did uh, edited his collected stories. I did the Richard Matheson companion. Uh, and, we to- did, and we did a whole tribute episode to Richard Matheson on this podcast a couple of years ago with David Scow um, and uh, John Scolari, who's a I Am Legend collector, and Greg Cox, who was his last editor. Um, yes. Yeah. And so people can find that back here. If you want more, if you want a lot of Richard Matheson nerding out, that panel back there is, I highly recommend. Uh, but go ahead. So, so yeah. Matheson's one of these ones you start, but did you make a list initially or did it just start happening? Like It just started that? happening mostly because of the fact of, uh, and I say thank God for this, uh, the World Fantasy Convention and the World Horror Convention back in the 80s. They, that's when they started up. And these were, when I say convention, they really should be called conferences because yeah. these were d- done for professionals. The, these weren't the, how should I put it, the fan gatherings that yeah. that that you think of when you hear the term convention. These were conferences where you had panels and you had uh, Richard Matheson on a panel, Robert Block on a panel, Ray Bradbury on a panel discussing their lives and career. And I would go to these conventions slash conferences, and I was a working professional, as I mentioned earlier, as a as a newspaper writer. Mm-hmm. And so I was on assignment. So here again, I was getting paid to do the interviews from the get-go. I already had a market knowing that I could go to the conference and write an article on the on the World Horror Convention in Providence, Rhode Island, and get to write about Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson and Robert Block and H. Warner Munn and Joseph Payne Brennan and Kirby McCauley, who was the premier uh, agent slash editor at the time. And so I was getting paid to interview these people. And I had already read these people and I was already in love with these people. And I was already having my own stumbling attempts to be a fiction writer as well. So I was like, what's not to like? This is like a kid going into the candy store and saying, you know, not only do I get to eat all the candy I want, I get to go meet the guys making the damn candy. (laughs) Right. And, you know, some of them, like the interview with Robert Block, for example, you know, like we lost him, you know, not not too far after that. So, you know, and, and we do have his autobiography, which is great. You know, um, that's I think some of the uh, uh, the the coolest anecdote for me from his biography is that 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 he was on the double date with uh, Kuttner and C.L. Moore on on there. You know, it didn't work out as well for him on his side. But um, oh, we lost. Okay, we got you. So, uh, yeah. So but block like him 
like like interviewing him like it, it you know did you feel a certain amount of weight knowing with some of the older writers that you were no no, no it, was, it, was all, it was all worship admiration just worshiping at their feet one of my great thrills in my lifetime is that i took block out to lunch not once but twice two different world horror conventions or world fantasy as the case may be i got to take him out to lunch yeah and just for me this you know to say that say that you say is like going out to, to dinner with with stephen king which i've done or yeah. or spending the evening at ray bradbury's house which i've done you know yeah. these these are things that when i when i mention it on 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 the internet people look at me and say oh my god yeah. i know i i've got a copy of a book signed by robert block and you took robert fucking block out to lunch and you got so to you, call him do you have a do you have a favorite moment? Would that be the Bradbury in the off the office, or or do you have probably one? that that like I say that was the first that was that's when I knew when, when I sat there and basically I had my drool I had my tape recorder and my drool cup. Mm -hmm. So while the tape recorder was going, I was drooling into my cup, saying, "I don't know what to ask you, Mister Bradbury. Just spill your guts. Just just talk. Just talk to me. I'm I'm your number one fan. Please." anything your 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 book the october country changed my life please educate me because i want to be a fiction writer myself someday so by the time i got to meet folks like stephen king and peter straub they were like older brothers they weren't yeah. people when you, you talk about different generations um for my generation stephen king is like five years older than me so it wasn't like I'm 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 sitting down here and Stephen King's this great guy. Stephen King's the guy who bought me drinks when he was drinking. You yeah. know, Stephen Stephen King was the guy when when somebody was on an elevator and they had a box full of books and the box was an empty beer box. And King said in the elevator, you know, that box was more valuable when it had the the beer in it <laughs> rather than the, the the books. Well, you know. Yeah, for me, um, meeting Richard Matheson, I met him three times at signings and things, uh, was the only time I've ever been tongue-tied or starstruck meeting an author. Because for the most part, Clive Barker a little bit, because Clive Barker was foundational for me growing up. But, um, but I had a specific experience that kept me from getting starstruck about Clive Barker. But Matheson, it was a big deal. And there was one of the three times I met Matheson, I was at a screenwriting conference and I had made friends with horror writer Owl Going Back, who I did not know. Like we just made friends because we just happened to be sitting in the audience near each other and recognize each other as horror writers and started talking. And Owl was there with Harlan Ellison. And so after Matheson spoke at this conference, Somehow I ended up in a hallway with Matheson and Ellison, Harlan Ellison, giving each other shit, basically, at a hard time. And I've never, I felt so, like, that was just a moment where I was like, pinch me, like, I can't believe I'm, I'm dreaming. This, I'm, yeah, I'm in this hallway with Richard Matheson telling Harlan Ellison to shut the fuck up, you know, <laughs> like, and... Oh, Harlan, shut the fuck up. And I was just like, oh my God, this is, I just saw Richard Matheson tell Harlan Ellison to shut up. 
and uh you know which very few people have the 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 cojones to do um being harlan who he was but yeah. anyways so your experience doing all these interviews i mean it just had to be um and i want to stick with dark dreamers for a little bit because and some of these are like early in the career like this is pretty early in the career for richard matt or, or for um robert mccammon for example right or joe lansdale or joe lansdale very early in his career um and i admit your book is how I heard of Joe Lansdale and went out and got the drive-in because um, I had never heard of him before. And um, I'm not sure if I'd heard of McCammon before or not, but, um, and of all, like a lot of these authors, to me, Robert McCammon is one of the most consistent. Like, yeah. um, like I just think he's a fantastic writer. And so for me, even going back now and looking at like, because I can read when he's an elder statesman and I can read interviews with him, but seeing him in those, that early stage is actually really important. So it's like you're catching lightning in a bottle with a lot of these guys, right? Um, and so are th some of these younger writers, did you did you foresee like right away like, oh, this 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 guy's this writer has it? like oh i knew i knew with joe lansdale and joe's been kind enough over the years to say that the fangoria interview put him on the map yeah the yeah. other one was uh jack ketchum yeah uh, i met him for the first time in an elevator a lot of elevator meets in my yeah. career and I, I i saw his uh, name tag jack ketchum and i had just reviewed his book off season his first novel for fangoria and gave it like a 10 star review saying this guy's a genius you got to read off season so I, I met him in the elevator and i said catch him he says what i says you know i made your career <laughs> and he looked at he recognized my name standing away otter and he says son of a bitch you did make my career and we <laughs> became instant friends after that and the same with joe when i got to meet him in person at again a world horror or a world fantasy convention where, where Joe was kind enough to say, Stanley, nobody knew who the hell Joe Lansdale was until you did that multi-book uh, uh, article on me for Fangoria and yeah. interview. Well, and and I mean, th these interviews, I mean, and some of them too, like uh, uh, David Morrell, um, for example, like... Um, because I love David Morrell and he didn't write a ton of horror, although his horror short stories were great. Great. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I think um, there's one that he wrote. It's so simple, but the storm um, uh, is so simple, but it would make such a great Masters of Horror if somebody like wanted to adapt it into a short. Um, but David Morrell, like talking about like his son and reading Tommyknockers in there, like, um, that one stuck with me for many, many years because like whenever people, when I say I subconsciously quote things, a lot of uh, it comes back to that David Morrell talking about like how horror can be an escape from like these like horrible situations. Like I think of that David Morrell quote all the time. Um, and I actually had a conversation with him about it at StokerCon um, in 2005. Um, and uh because I, I think David Morrell is a very underrated writer. Um, even though he was a bestseller and he's well-rated, I, I think he could have been rated even better. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And, yeah, and um, 
but you know in in like some of these voices like charles l grant for example you know who we lost like you know far too early and 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 um richard layman and so you know like i think of those two interviews as being ones that are really important documents of like you know because in the 80s you saw their their um names on paperbacks like all the time everywhere everywhere every new every newsstand every every airport everywhere their books were up or were around yeah and charles l grant well layman i think is still remembered to a degree by a lot of the extreme horror people but you know and charles l grant also wrote science fiction and um but charles l grant's like a name that i feel like is kind of slipping away and so i think you know some of the importance of because like you know not just the not just the novels that he wrote but um the collections that he edited were were fantastic and very important the shadows uh, series yeah for one yeah He's most yeah. famous yeah Quiet so i think so i i think that that's like a huge thing that this book does and you were able to and we'll get into this in a little bit because but i want to talk about dark visions first but eventually you were able to do a tv series of 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 this and we will get to that we will talk about that (laughs) i'm i'm here all week (laughs) yeah but uh, shortly after that you do dark visions and this is a whole different ball game because getting it's easy to get horror writers at the horror writer at the world horror convention because they're all going to be there for the most part a lot of them but uh tracking down the filmmakers who are often on set or often you know and there is crossover because obviously you did clive barker in both but getting a wes craven or a roger corman or um stuart gordon like uh vincent price was a big you know oh wow spent the day with vincent price that that, that's something you remember for the rest of your life yeah and and i was surprised to see uh old bill nolan and dark visions and not dark dreamers when i was reviewing it uh, a couple days but i know he did a lot of screenwriting and yes um when i lived up in portland i i i spent quite a bit of time with 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 bill so um and i I, i'm not gonna imitate bill because I, I've been told I do a really good bill, but I don't want to. But, you know, seeing some of these names in here, like it's Dark Visions had to have been a little bit harder organizing, or am I wrong about that? Like, because you did, then again, you did have the power of this being on the shelves already, right? Yes, that is true. And I was, it was easy to send it to their office, send the book to their office. Or just simply name drop to say, you know, the Dark Dreamers is out there. I've interviewed Stephen King, Peter Straub, Richard Matheson. Of course, Richard Matheson being who he is, that opened a lot of doors to get to get to know uh, other people. And as I say, as a working journalist for for uh, newspapers, arts newspapers in Western Massachusetts back in the 80s and 90s, I had the the the. the uh, uh, how should I put it? A ready market for for the interview. So it was like I, I was I was so fortunate that my editor said, "Well, we don't read horror, but everybody else seems to be reading horror or, or going to horror movies." Stanley, here's your assignment: go interview Wes Craven, and we'll pay you pay you to publish it. 
And so were you having to like jump on planes and go to film sets for a lot of these? For some, know? yes. For some of them, yes. I I would go out to Los Angeles. I had friends out in LA. I had uh, some family out in Los Angeles. So it, again, it was a, it was a, a joyful job, as I would put it, to have to say, well, I've got to go out to the West Coast. Plus, as I say, when when I won that scholarship to work at Warner Brothers or study at Warner Brothers as a college undergraduate. To, to go out and meet Ray Bradbury, that was a life-changing event. Uh, I mean, I've, I've just been blessed by having so many uh, situations of being at, at the right place at the right time and not to wax nostalgic, but the 80s and the 90s, if you were in the horror business, you were golden, baby. You know, every yeah. every publisher, every studio said, you know, we want to make a Wes Craven film. We want to publish a Stephen King novel. Yeah. Uh, and I was the guy, for better or worse, there was, I always tell people when they say, uh, I've heard of Stan the Weotter, and I said, do you know why you've heard of Stan the Weotter? Because there was nobody else doing it but Stan the Weotter. <laughs> That's uh, right. There so, were a couple guys, but nobody was putting it in, uh, in books like Dark Dreamers and Dark Visions. So what was it like interviewing Vincent Price? Where did you, was that? He actually LA? came out, he came out to the University of Massachusetts. To, uh, to do a, a, a performance, a one-man performance, the villains still pursue me. So it was an evening with Vincent Price, and during that same day when I spent when I spent time with him, he was talking to various uh, acting classes and theater classes at, at, at UMass, as we called it, and uh, that's when I got to spend time with him and do the interview. But you know, growing up. This 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 is this this is where I know you appreciate it. Growing up as a kid in 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 rural Massachusetts, and going to the movie theaters, the Calvin Theater in Northampton, and seeing House of Usher, or The Pit and the Pendulum, and by the way, those movies they starred Vincent Price. They were written by, by Richard, Richard Matheson. Matheson. That's right. And guess yeah. what? They were directed by Roger Corman. I mean, this this was a kid who at age 10, 12, 13, 14 said, I, I, I don't know if I'm alive or dead. I just know I'm in heaven. I'm in horror heaven. <laughs> and to, to, to actually go on a few years later and say, this is my destiny. You know, I am, I am the guy who is destined to write these books. And you notice the books are not called interview books. They're yeah. called conversations. conversations. Yeah. Because yeah, I, yeah. I made a point with my publishers to say, don't call them collections of interviews. I say, these are conversations with the masters, because that's how I looked at it. And I would tell the guy, you know, I'm not just some reporter off the street who for one day has to interview Vincent Price. I've seen every horror movie Vincent Price ever made. I'm not a guy who has to, oh, for one day has to go and interview Stephen King. At that time, I had read every Stephen King novel and short story that was out there and loved the genre. So when I interviewed these people, they knew they had met, in a sense, a soulmate. All right. Was... So now, now, one thing, too, is that it, it's always been obvious to me that Stephen King wasn't in here. And I know you could have gotten Stephen King. And I always appreciated that. I was like, I got enough interviews with Stephen King. They're all over the place. And it was more important for me to hear from these from these other authors 
But was that intentional in that way? Because I kind of appreciated that back in the day, you know. Like, well, Stephen King is 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 in Dark Dreamers with Peter Straub. That's true. Yeah. That's true. But he doesn't have his own chat. That yeah. And I think of it that way, I guess. But he wasn't in Dark Visions. He only did the one movie, right? So, right. Right. Yeah. No, I I'm the only I'm the only journalist who ever interviewed uh, Stephen King and Peter Straub three times in a row. Mm. And I mean by that three annual interviews. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's true. I always, you know, it's funny because I, I think of that interview as them together. I don't think of it because it's so different from each of them doing an interview on their own, like that conversation. Um, And that is part of it. And so, because for me, like what I would, and the reason why I say that is because at the time, like it would have been so easy to make Stephen King, the anchor of the book and like 30% of the book and then a little bit with other people, but it wasn't that. Um, I would like to do a lightning round where we go through some of the names and you tell me a little bit about interviewing all these people. And I'm going to go back and forth from the two books. Like, like, you know, 30 seconds on everybody. Okay. Um, 30 seconds to a minute. If, if it's a really good story, keep going. Um, obviously, Clive Barker, you did in both books. What was what was your situation? What was it like doing Clive? Plus the, plus the TV series, Dark Dreamers. Yeah. He was the first episode of Dark Dreamers. And uh, we went to his house in Beverly Hills. And when I say his house, you know, of course, I mean a mansion. Yeah. And of course, when I say a mansion, he had one mansion that he lived in. And across the street, he had another mansion that he would do his artwork and writing in. So the guy was suffering, and I figured he needed the publicity, so I put him in both books. Right. And, uh, but, I mean, it was amazing experience. I'm sure he was at the height of his powers, really. Yes. He was just starting to do his artwork. And at that time, he at least, believe it or not, he had not sold his artwork to Disney. He had leased the images to Disney for if they ever wanted to use it for a theme park or a haunted mansion type scenario. He was he had sold the rights for the horrific images and macabre images to Walt Disney Company for several million dollars. Yeah. And most people are not are not aware of that. Yeah, I I, I've I've actually heard him talk about that. Um, Yeah. About when he had the pitch meeting, they all came to to his manage with that yeah that's interesting um so how about roger corman roger corman has been probably interviewed a thousand times and i don't think i'm exaggerating by much when i interviewed roger which was over the phone uh because i didn't we missed meetings we were supposed to interview him for the tv show but we 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 our wires did did not cross but when I interviewed him over the phone, he gave the fastest responses to anybody I've ever interviewed in my life. It was like, no matter what the question, you knew in your heart, Roger had been asked this 500 times before. So even though I thought it was a pretty good interview, I don't hold it out as one of my best because there was nothing I could ask Roger that he, he said, you know, Stanley, 
that this is how I feel about this. And Stanley, this is what I think about that. Because you know that every, every journalist for the last 50 years has been asking those questions uh, of Roger Corman. But super sweet guy. And, and the guy's still with us. He's in his 90s now, I believe. Yeah. And Roger, he's still sharp as a tack and still, uh, still, still got uh, his act together. Gary Brandener. Gary Brandener was... Uh, he was funny. Howling. He was he was Gary in parentheses the Howling Bradner, yeah. because yeah. there's a man named Robert in parentheses Psycho Block. And every time you see Robert Block's name in a marketing ploy for a book, they always have to mention his middle name, which is Psycho in quotes. <laughs> With Gary Bradner, because of the success of the Howling, every time every book he wrote post the Howling. They mentioned by Gary the Howling Bradner, and he thought it was a hoot because he did have some success in Hollywood with the movie The Howling, and uh, was also involved with Howling Two. Your werewolf, your sister is a werewolf. I think is the subtitle for it, which has got to be one of the most god awful horror movies ever made. But his name is still Pretty attached bad. to it. Uh, John Carpenter. John Carpenter was great. I met met him in his office, and uh, very laid back, very California. He said he was just like California to me, a California director personified, if there is such a thing, and just just seemed to take his his fame in stride. Very uh, very low key, uh, smoking. I remember him smoking. One of the few people who. Probably will die with a cigarette in his mouth if he hasn't stopped, uh, hopefully stopped smoking already. But just a very kind person. One one thing I have to say about horror people in general, they are kind. And they know that a lot of people consider them outsiders and basically beneath other kind of creative people. Something about horror, even science fiction, I feel, is, is regarded more highly by the mainstream uh, critics and populists at large because horror is is kind of like well if you can't really write something you write something that's scary if you can't write something that's important write something that's frightening and these people know that uh, a lot of people look down at them down their noses at them and for a reporter to come in and say by the way what you do is fucking important and by the way i worship you and i am so proud that you're spending your time with me. And it yeah. kind of made the, the conversation go uh, go well after that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I had the same experience with Norman Spinrad. <laughs> um, so, John Farrow. <laughs> Excuse me, give me one moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, um, like I said, the John Ferris interview was really important for me because he was just somebody that I didn't know much about other than I read a lot of his books. So uh, that was a big one. Uh, what were your what was your experience with uh, John Ferris? John was one of the few interviews I did over the phone. I never had the unfortunate uh, opportunity to meet with him. He did not go to conventions to make a long story very short. He did not go to conventions, so I never had the chance to meet with him directly. Uh, thank God he's still with us, 
and uh, obviously his books will will outlive him. And uh, you know, like I say, a very pleasant person to talk to. Uh, Charles L. Grant. Charles L. Grant would often go to the conventions. I think he went to the, all the conventions. There was a convention that still exists to this day called Nikon, which is held in Rhode Island every year. And they, they just reached their 40th or 42nd convention. And and uh, I went to like the first 30 of those before I more or less retired from the, from the, from the writing game. And uh, Charles Grant was uh, a former... Uh, Vietnam medic, if if my if I can get my story right, so he has seen a lot of horror in real life, and what he did in horror was try to make it uh, subdued and quiet, what he called quiet horror, because he didn't want to gross people out. He he did not like the splatterpunk movement. He liked stories that let the, let the reader uh, gross yourself out, not not gross out the reader from the words directly. But he was another smoker. Yeah. And um, might be one of the reasons why we lost him, huh? Yeah, probably probably the reason we lost him because he was a heavy smoker. And uh, he, he was very prolific. He, I think he had like six or seven pen names that he wrote under. And, uh, he, you know, he churned out uh, two or three books a year easily back okay. in the 80s and 90s. Him and Maltzberg with the, all the all the pen names um uh george a romero george romero was another truck what i call truck driver personality stephen king i i did one interview for fangoria where i interviewed uh, george romero and stephen king together again a rare instance where i i was able to get them in a bar this this is this is was so fun i'm not a drinker i'm basically a teetotaler I'm more of a soda junkie than anything else, but I, I found that the best interviews were always done in bars, not, not going to a panel, not meeting them in a hotel room. But if you didn't mind the background noise, just getting them in the corner or a private room of a, of a, of a bar at the convention uh, was the best place to conduct an interview. So that's where I did George and uh, Stephen. And uh, again, they were like two truck drivers who said, Wait a minute. We grew up uh, watching, uh, re uh, reading EC comics. Let's do a movie called Creep Show, where we get to live out our fantasy, our childhood fantasies of uh, writing and directing a movie based on EC comics. So George took uh, took uh, everything in stride. He was a working working stiff. Never thought uh, uh, too much of himself. Just as Stephen King is. If, uh, in spite of his incredible fame and fortune, Stephen King is the type of guy, if you didn't know it was the Stephen King, uh, you would just think, this is just a working stiff, you know, wears glasses, big guy, uh, you know, doesn't say much uh, in public unless someone recognizes him as the Stephen King. There was one instance where we were at a bar, and this was pre, when he's, before he had his intervention and stop drinking but we were at a bar at a convention as as we were always at the bar to do the interviews and when he, when he signed uh, for the for the the check for our, for our drinks uh the, the the waitress looked at the signature for for his room and it said Stephen King and she says are you the Stephen King and he kind of shrugged and I says and he says yeah 
I kind of guess I am. <laughs> I kind of guess I am. You're right. You know, what are you um, going to do? There's the Stephen King. Uh, Dennis Etcherson, uh, another uh, uh, Harlan Ellison-esque personality. <laughs> yeah. yeah. De- Dennis was, was, was a... Was a, was a uh, he was a live wire, but... Uh, he was I another guy who did one of his last events, by the way. So <laughs> down yeah. here in San Diego. So... I'm very familiar with uh, his personality, but uh, very prickly, nice. prickly human. I'll just say he's a prickly human being. Does I still don't think another? You mentioned David Morrell being underrated. Dennis Etchison's another underrated uh, writer. I remember his first collection of, of short stories, "The Dark Country," and he told me that the reason he called it "The Dark Country" was because of Ray Bradbury, and he took the October Country and Dark Carnival and blended the two titles together to make it the dark country. Hmm. Yeah. And he was he was not satisfied with the interview. He was one of the very few writers. Most of the writers I've interviewed and I've interviewed hundreds of people in my career uh they simply trusted me and they said Stanley I would always offer them always say, you know, would you like to see the interview before it goes to print so you can take things in, I mean take things out, put things in. Nine times out of ten, people say, Stanley, I trust you. You you know, you do what you want with it. But Dennis was like, I, I gotta look at it, I gotta edit it, I gotta change it, I gotta do this, I gotta modify it. You know, this word I could use a I could have used a better word or a better phrasing here. And uh, but that was Dennis. It was nothing there was nothing wrong with the interview. It's just that ultimately he he just wanted to tinker with it and uh and I think it uh, ultimately appeared in Twilight Zone magazine, plus, yeah. of course, Dark Dreamers. Yeah, I moderated a panel that he spoke on for at the Horrible Imaginings Film Fest in San Diego that I think might have been his last public appearance. And he was he was great, did a great job. But um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I had met Dennis before, so I knew how prickly he was. But um, I kind of uh, appreciate that of him. Um, uh, let's see. David Cronenberg is a big one. Another was- rare uh, telephone interview. Did not have the opportunity to meet with him on set. I wish I had. But uh, just very formal. This was early in his career. I think he had only done four or five movies at this time. And uh, this was just about the time, same time, the, the, the first book of criticism of Cronenberg came out. I believe called the shape of rage, uh, an examination of his movies, and that, again, this was at the time he had only had done four or five movies, but he already had at that time a cult following for his movies. But again, very formal, very polite, very nice. Um, Anne Rice. Anne Rice was another person. Unfortunately, I did not meet in person, but a very again, very sweet. Uh, but a bit of a loner in the sense that she did not consider herself, and I'll use this in quotes, one of the boys. She did not consider herself part of any movement or any group of writers. She was Anne Rice. She was her, she felt she was a, a genre unto herself, did not go to conventions, did not go to conferences, at least none that, that I was aware of at the time I was conducting the interviews. All right, I got two left on my list that I'm interested in. Um, Wes Craven. 
Wes Craven was very nice. Uh, met him in his office. Met him on the set of, uh, believe it or not, his one non-horror movie, Music from the Heart, I believe was the title, that uh, was shot in New York with Meryl Streep, if memory serves. So yep. uh, I remember going to, to see him on set, and the set just happened to be Carnegie Hall, and Isaac Perlman was in performance and, and being filmed for the movie. Uh, music from the heart so uh just <laughs> yeah. just a super sweet guy i ended up writing a book about him which for again long story short uh never got legally published to my knowledge it was accepted by a publisher was scheduled by a publisher and then kind of disappeared or the publisher disappeared and, and never saw the light of day but wes was another person who very low-key, uh, was just uh, humbled by the fact that people thought he was such a great director. He did not think he was a great director. He just said, you know, I'm a working stiff, doing the best I can every day. Yeah, and um, I think my last lightning round is Whitley Strieber. Oh, Whitley. Oh, my God. Oh, Whitley. He's still with us. Yes. Ah, Whitley's one of a kind. I did two interviews with him for Twilight Zone magazine, two of my best. Dean Koontz even wrote me a fan letter about the Whitley Streeper interviews because he was so blown away from them. I did one interview with Whitley before the communion experience, and Whitley was the most haunted person I met, very skittish, very nervous type personality. And then I interviewed him after Communion became a New York Times number one bestseller. And he was a totally different personality. Uh, very confident, still haunted, but haunted in a different way because, of course, the Communion experience had happened to him. And I was a sympathetic ear. A lot of people in the horror community and science fiction community disowned Whitley because of his success as a fiction writer, they said, you're just cashing in on flying saucers and alien abductions and you're full of shit to make, you know, to make a, a, a perfectly blunt point about it. And I, and when I spoke with Whitley for the second time after uh, the communion experience, uh, he knew that he had a sympathetic ear. So he was very open to me. And those two interviews I, uh, which I melded together in in the book, uh, Dark Dreamers, I consider amongst my my finest because, uh, you know, I was I was willing to w listen to Whitley uh, about being abducted by, uh, you know, alien visitors, and uh, at a time when not everybody would 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 give them give them the time of day. Well, and I think it's curious. Like I heard. It's when his wife passed away and, you know, they had turned this into like a very big industry here in the last couple of years. And then when when she passed away, he wrote another horror novel and I heard him on on a horror podcast. And he was very like he only wanted to talk about his horror novel. Right. And he did not want to 
bring up the other stuff and I thought maybe it had so much to do with, you know, him losing his wife. I'm not sure, but I find him to be a very fascinating person. Yes. And one of the reasons why I waited to last to ask you is because I agree. You did a great interview with him. And uh, it's interesting that Dean Koontz uh, dropped you a line on that. Cause, uh, and I probably should have asked you about Koontz because he's an interesting guy. I'm not personally a fan of Koontz's work. However, I think intensity is incredible. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, but I appreciate everything that he's done. And I keep meaning to read his early science fiction because I think that's the lane that I will enjoy. <laughs> um uh but i haven't got around to it. i have dark symphony sitting on the shelf back there i'm gonna get to it eventually but um but yeah i think the whitley streber one is a really important interview and that's why i waited to last <laughs> to you know, one thing i'm proud of is that um a lot of authors have uh official websites and over the years i've been told that uh, my interview with a certain person was the best interview they've ever sat for. And yeah. if you go to their website, uh, haven't lately, but if you go to the Rick McCammon website, I'm told that my interview with, with Robert McCammon is there as the, the example of a good interview with Robert McCammon. If you go to the Graham Masterton website, I'm told that my interview with Graham Masterton is considered the best interview with uh, Graham Masterton. If you go to the TV series, Dark Dreamers, and there are various episodes up on YouTube, if you go to the interview with Harlan Ellison, uh, Harlan Ellison told me that uh, the one that he did with me was one of the best interviews uh, he had ever done in his career. Well, it's not and like said, he was a tough critic or anything. No, he he wasn't. And he said, as long as you pay me my, my $1,000 speaking fee, I'll give you the best interview you've ever had. I'm said, obviously being sarcastic about him not being a tough critic because he was. Oh no, he's he was a he's he was a he was a softy. It was it was Susan. Susan was the boss of, of that relationship. Uh, people have it all twisted around. Susan led him on a leash, uh, but it was invisible. Nobody nobody saw it except a very few people. But I'll tell you a quick story about Harlan when we went to his home for the day to film our episode. Because, again, most people who are not in the industry don't realize that a half hour, the, the Dark Dreamers was a half hour show that ran from 2000 to 2001. And uh, most people are not aware that it, it takes hours and hours and hours to, to conduct an interview for television. And then you whittle it down to 15 minutes or 10 minutes or an hour or 23 minutes as as as, as our show was with without the commercials but we went to his home and uh susan was there and and susan was leaving and he, he said uh, you know susan's not going to be here so you're just going to have me to deal with the whole day and i said well that's fine and he said well you know she, she's off to do pilates and this is back in the year 2000 right. and i said oh okay and he says yeah he says uh you know what pilates are don't you and I said, sure, Harlan, I just had two for breakfast. <laughs> and he, his jaw dropped. He didn't know it. He was so ready to say, you know, you're dealing with Harlan 
Ellison for the day. And I go, no, you're dealing with Stan Weotter for the day. <laughs> well, we had a wonderful time. Yeah. And I got to say, like, for me, you know, picking your brain and doing this is, 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 is really exciting for me because I think, um, you know, now that podcasts are a thing and long form interviews are common and they're, you know, uh, have you thought about releasing some of the unedited Dark Dreamers? I, I don't know. I haven't looked to see if you've done that already, but like, you know, because now there's an appetite for these types of long form interviews. I, I have thought of it, but I'm more or less retired for health reasons. Yeah. So as much as I'm, believe it or not, planning to, uh, I'm starting research on doing my memoirs because enough people have been bugging about it. I'm just trying to find the right publisher. And I also want to put out one more book of uh, short, my collected short stories. Uh, nice. I basically, to be perfectly blunt, I sold my archives a few years ago and the archives had all the all the raw tapes both audio and video mm. uh so again um you know I'm a where where, where are they archived because that's I, I sold them to a book dealer oh okay all and right if i if i had given them to a university i would have gotten a nice tax credit or i could have sold them to a rare book dealer who will remain nameless and uh picked up, up a nice piece them. of change yeah well, and, you know, the um, University of Pittsburgh is trying to position itself as the ultimate horror archive. And I say that because I know, like, um, uh, my friend Lisa Morton, she, uh, you know, former president of the HWA, she just recently moved, started moving her papers there and willing her papers there. And horror writers should think about that because they're now doing digital archives as well. So, you know, um, they're they're starting to archive like the different drafts that people write digitally and things like that. And so and speaking of somebody who's, who digs in the archives and loves digging in the archives, um, you know, you just have no idea. And, and literally I've, I, you know, last year I did one, I, I started, I haven't published it yet, but I worked on an article about DC Fontana um, who wrote for Star Trek yes. and you know, it's hilarious to me because I went there for DC Fontana, but I found all kinds of different stuff in the Star Trek archives and you never know what you're going to find. And some of the things are just hilarious. But like one of the best things I found was 16 pages of notes to Norman Spinrad on the Doomsday Machine. And to this day, the funniest thing, one of the funniest things I've ever read in an archive is where they told him in the notes Hey, um, you wrote that everybody got their tricorders out. We only have two. <laughs> so you can only write two tricorders in there. Into your script. Yeah. <laughs> it cracked me up. But I'm just, I'm point. it's funny. But the reason I say this is these archives can get us nuggets and little important things. And people should take seriously archiving their work. Um, and, and I have. Uh, and they were, they were, if, if you go on the internet, and I mean you rhetorically, you'll find the arcs auction uh, that there were there were uh, two separate auctions that mm. were the Stand the We It was called the Stand the We Archive of Modern Horror, quote unquote, and it was over a hundred boxes of materials, well, bankers boxes of material. I hope that bookseller 
uh, considers doing some some public things with that. I certainly don't uh, um, begrudge you for making the choice that you did. Um, I think as long as the stuff stays around and is eventually available for people to find, that's the most important thing to me. And one of the my most dream, my dream is my dream is I'll win the lottery someday and I'll buy back the archive if it's still intact, and then I will donate it to the University of Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, but we have these, and that's most that that is the most yeah. important thing. We also have and they're ebooks. Yep, yep. And um, ebooks now, David. Yeah, and people can find them, and they're really, really important um, documents um, and archives. Just like looking at um, today, I was, I just, you know, seeing like Joe Lansdale being interviewed at that point in his career. You know, uh, for for just pulling one example out, it, it's really valuable and important stuff. But for me, like, um, you know, speaking to. Uh, you know, your name was very important to me because like, the, you know, that book sat on my toilet for years. So like I saw your name often um, and uh, your role is archiving the, these people to me, um, like you're a hero to me. Um, and that's, you know, uh, my current role as a columnist for Amazing Stories. I'm writing a little bit more about um, the history of science fiction but for me like getting this stuff out in the internet age where i want people to know who tony boucher was i want people to know who Catherine lucille moore was especially because i'm a hoosier and she's from indiana um yeah. by the way her dorm she lived in in college was is literally a five minute walk from the house i grew up in so wow. um and I didn't discover that till last year when we did the episode on Chamblow on this podcast. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, part of the things we do with the podcast is to cover this history. And I do the sci-fi here. And Stanley, you for years covered horror. But there's a lane out there for somebody young and full of energy who wants to do something like this to be inspired by your work and become the horror archivist, become the person that does this history. Um, you know, my lane is mostly Philip K. Dick and John Bruner and new wave golden age, all that. I want, I'm, I'm just putting it out there horror folks. Somebody can, can be the next generation that does this. We need more work like dark visions and dark dreamers to keep um the history alive because well stanley caught joe lansdale as he was coming up somebody else out there can catch the next voice as they're coming up and um i just want to again state what a major impact these books had on me and for better or for worse <laughs> uh but uh, Stanley, so when can I, so you're going to be working on your memoir next? That's the next thing. That's probably the next thing. I, I right now um, I'm waiting publication of uh, the book of photographs that Beth Gwynn and I did 25 years ago called Dark Dreamers Facing the Masters of Fear. You may be familiar with it. It was yep. published by Cemetery Dance and it won the Bram Stoker Award for best yeah, nonfiction well of that year. And we're putting out 
that as an ebook and trade paperback later this year. Nice. So that's you can say that's a project that's going to be next on the horizon. I do want to. It was one weird thing about it. The publisher asked me to put death dates of the people who have de been deceased since the book was published. Oof. And out of the hundred or so people in the book, nearly forty have passed on. And uh, it's it's kind of weird talking about Dennis Etchison. He's in the book, and Charles Grant. He's in the book, and Jack Ketchum. And he's in the book. And these are people who love to smoke and love to drink. And uh, it's unfortunate that uh, they had those bad habits. There's a similar book, The Faces of Science Fiction, right? And um, I had a friend who was a, um, a bookseller in Canada, Robert Garfat. He owned uh, Dark Horse Books in Victoria, Canada. And he sent me this copy because he was working through getting it signed. And he said... And he sent it to me. He said, David, keep trying to get the signatures in this book. And, I, you know, I, I, you know, Robert was in the, he was almost passed away too. And I said, Robert, I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of these people are already gone. There's not many more, you know, to get. And yeah. it would, you know, we had like kind of a sad moment of talking about it, but, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know i think these books these pictures th these faces you know it's important to remember the people that were part of the genre and that's the work you do as a historian and i think it's important to say that we're i like to think of us as historians as well as columnists and yes. commentators and interviewers and and um you know but this this was a huge honor stanley to have you here on my podcast because um and it's something i i have literally on my my dream guest list you've been there for a long time and it was just a couple of weeks ago i just said to myself i you posted something and i said now's the time i'm going to reach out to stanley and i'm glad we were able to make it possible um is there anything else you want to say to the horror community that um it, that's out there like with this opportunity, like, um, you know, the next generation working on archiving and doing the history of all this. Just basically that horror has always been with us. It is with us now. It always will be with us as a pop culture and a phenomenon as a genre. Uh, horror has been successful in the past, especially in film. It was popular in the 80s. It was popular in the 90s. And guess what? Horror films are more popular than ever. And Stephen King is still the number one best-selling horror writer on the planet and probably in history. So my idea is... Of any uh, genre, probably. Of any, probably of any genre. So as as I say on the television show, which, which as I say, most of it is uh, available on YouTube and you can purchase the actual two seasons worth of DVD uh on amazon or, or barnes and noble uh you know is to uh enjoy the light you must first explore the heart and soul of the darkness and as jack ketchum once famously said the dark is my church and i happen to be a very religious fellow that's awesome all right uh stanley um how can folks find you if they want to find your work where's the best place uh -huh. Best places to go to Amazon.com 
or go to go, go to Google. Either way, there'll be links on, on where to purchase my books, my DVDs, my CDs, my my uh, all my stuff in the in the wonderful the Stan the We Otter multiverses. It's out there, folks, and I'm I'm still alive and kicking at least as of today. <laughs> Stanley, uh, again, I appreciate all the work that you've done. Um, you're a huge inspiration to me. Um, uh, and and it's a quite, quite an honor to have you on this here podcast. Um, but I'm probably going to ask you to come back at some, t- at some point and maybe be a panelist because we do have, we are covering the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. And I could see you doing a great job on some of those episodes if you so are so inclined but um consider me consider me leaning yeah and and, and, uh um i owe you a debt of gratitude i don't know that i can repay so i appreciate um your time and i hope everyone um who doesn't already have your work goes out runs out and gets it and supports your work so um and uh um and i i don't know when did you move to oregon by the way like when did you uh two years ago oh okay so we weren't there at the same time so yeah i can't feel bad that i didn't see you when i was up there (laughs) (laughs) i may even go to stokercon this year oh well yeah let's uh let's uh connect if you do and um we're uh you know, we're doing uh, events each month, uh, countdown to StokerCon here in San Diego. So for folks who made it this far listening, keep your eye out. The next one is at Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore, um, February 10th. So we just had the first one Friday night and it was a great success. There was a lot of people out trying to make sure we fill that dealer room with lots of locals. Um, uh, uh, so we're, we're trying to program ahead of time. So on that note, folks, um, if you made it this far, you're awesome. Uh, Stanley, um, uh, go buy his books and we'll see you next time on Postcards from a Dying World. I think the next episode is actually covering Lester Del Rey's Helen O'Loy for the Science Fiction Hall of Fame series. That should be the next episode. Um, If not, then it'll be like two down. But I've already got that panel booked. And I got a robotics expert and I might not have needed one for a story that old about robots, but we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. Uh, Thanks folks for joining me and uh, we'll uh, see Stanley again someday, hopefully soon. Thanks for joining us.